Greetings, fellow travelers, and welcome to the Way of the Showman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am Captain Frodo, and I will be your host and your gracious guide along the way today. It is a grey autumn day here in Norway. The, I'm looking out over the sea, and it's dark, and uh, and even though it is in the middle of the day, so that's winter for you here. This is the calm before the storm. Uh, I am lucky enough to be um, quite booked out for the Christmas season. A bunch of uh, corporate shows and stuff, so that's uh, all very nice. Um, but uh, these uh, two weeks here now that I'm almost at the end of now, I have um, I've been sort of single parenting. Uh, my wife is away in... Uh, Las Vegas and, and gone to Hawaii so that's all very nice for her and meanwhile I am here and we're busy we just bought a house that we've just taken over a couple of days ago so I'm moving into the house and I've organized what uh, paperwork and stuff that has been needed to be done just in this last minute most of that work is done by my wife i'm completely illiterate when it comes to these kind of things i break out in hives if i am to even just contemplate doing my taxes i think i'm too much of an artist soul i fret and worry about those things so much but anyway here i am doing all of this and this is just a quick thing to take my hat off and to pay my respect to all those single parents out there who slug out doing the work that you need to take care of your family and on top of that <laughs> doing all the stuff that you need to do to be with your family and to make a life as well not just worrying about making a living it is a uh, not an easy not an easy thing to make it all go around. I don't know, maybe it is also when you're trying to be creative, um, where you sort of need this, well, I do anyway, sort of need this little bit of calm or whatever way f where you can take a moment to, um, you know, to think or whatever. And then having the willpower to sit down and actually do something and create something. Um, it is it is just difficult when there are so many little things that need to be done to set off that little bit of time that you have when your child is in school or whatever time it is. My hat off to all those creatives out there who manage to create stuff in the midst of making a living and making a life and sharing all the love with your family. So, um going to keep the preamble short today uh, I am um, getting towards the end of these uh, of this uh, huge uh, project that we've uh, done here and uh, today we've gotten to a topic because we've sort of we've reached we're talking about shows different aspects of shows last time we talked about how shows we show folk have their homes in two different places um, which is a topic that was very near and dear to my heart when I first sort of arrived at that thought during the dark of the pandemic. And now we're going to have a little bit of a bigger sort of scope. We're talking a little bit about evolution and stuff again. And um, 
I am, without any further ado, we're going to move on to talk about the uselessness of shows. Yes, on the uselessness of shows. Are they useless? Well, let's see what I have to say. But those of you who have listened before, you probably know that I will... which (laughs) direction that I'll end up going. Because it has been claimed in certain circles that shows and art in general are kind of useless added luxury extras, like gilding on the lily that is our everyday life trimmings and insignificant fluff on the important everyday existence. Art is anyway the first thing to go when there are budget restraints or cuts. Painting, singing, dancing and even smiling and laughter have at various times been described as futile and useless human universals. We all do it, but it's not strictly necessary. We smile, we laugh, but it's adds a little bit of something to the everyday world and to our existence and we'll have a laugh in a day but it doesn't really matter you can't survive by smiling and laughter alone so um, (laughs) as a standard street show line used when asking for money is it's great that you all clap and smile and laugh but I don't know, this is not particular, this is, as I realize, this is not like the line, but this is a paraphrasing here, it's like, it's, it's great that you all clap and smile and laugh, but I can't go to the supermarket and pay for my groceries with smiles and good times, so please put some money in my hat. Money, that's serious business right there. Whilst the actual show and the fun and games we had, that doesn't seem to be important. I mean... That, uh, that concept is, uh, is very alien to me. But anyway, art and shows, they haven't got much practical use. That effervescent thing that we talked about, we've talked about a lot of how it is the thing that emerges between the showman and the audience. It's, it's the experience that we have when we are there. This, um, you know, is just not a very practical thing. After the show is done, then the audience just takes that with them and it was just something that happened maybe also in t- today's um, age where we're just getting so much entertainment and so much uh, you know entertainment both of the good kind but also of that bad kind that just leaves you four hours scrolling and you've sort of the time has disappeared but you don't you haven't been enriched in it which of course is the showman's obligation as we've talked about so yeah It's also been argued that singing and painting and sculpting doesn't make any direct evolutionary sense. And this might be true in a certain limited sense, but I'm going to argue that this is only true in a superficial way. And I am just making these statements that it has been argued this, and I'm doing this in a kind of folk wisdom kind of way. Anyone who who is a creative artist out there have had that thing on, oh, it'll be great for your exposure, oh, we haven't got any money, but we would like some color and movement over in the corner on this thing here. It's like, they want it, but they don't want to pay for it, so they don't quite take it seriously, or so, and then it's, a lot of the stuff that I'm thinking of here, too, is kind of, it's more academic, um, from more intellectual or philosophical ways. It's also been argued that singing and painting is, you know, added extras, but not really 
It's, some, it's something that is free riding on the serious things. Now, only true in a superficial way, I think that is. And the only things which matters for evolution by natural selection is how many replications you can make of your selfish genes and that you can stay alive long enough to make that happen. Another fact about evolution is that if you can't procreate your gene, then your gene line ends with you. Like if you can't procreate at all, then that's the end of you. And all those who begets no kids to carry on their biological lineage um, as ensouled and animated organic material, they will disappear from the fine, huge, great game of life. And this is the case with everything, all animals, fungi, and plants. If the reason you didn't have kids was caused by some biological traits, say that you were infertile and this trait was shared by every person in your culture, that culture would disappear in one generation. That's um, that brilliant book and movie, Children of Men. Excellent movie. That's the kind of plot line. Something has happened and no one is getting any children anymore. So that the youngest person alive is, I can't remember what it is, it's like 35 years old or something like that. That's the youngest person, there's nobody younger than that. Interesting concept, interesting movie. But anyway, you would all disappear. So that the, the trait of infertility, uh, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as infertility, but any trait making you less likely to succeed in the evolutionary game of life, the infinite game, um, if persistent, if this trait persists, then eventually it will disappear from the gene pool. This is at least the idea. If it's not useful or important for a species survival, then it will, over large periods of time, disappear. And that things that are beneficial to you, like uh, if you can reach some leaves, this is the classic kind of example, of course, if you can reach some leaves that are out of reach for most other animals, um, then those animals with that little bit longer neck might just um, have a bigger chance of getting more kids and that those kids are going to survive. And if that thing with a longer neck just continues and continues and each generation has that cent one centimeter longer neck, that's a large leap, but one centimeter longer on average, you know, if that gives you that extra bit of food that you need, uh, then eventually we might end up with a giraffe. That's at least the idea. And if it's um, that the neck gets shorter and shorter until you can't get any food at all. Um, <laughs> this is such a ridiculous example, but yeah, then you'll disappear in the end. That trait will disappear. So it's then interesting to ponder that the evidence for the first date of humans creating art, it just keeps getting pushed further and further back into our evolutionary past. We currently know that we painted the walls of our caves as far back as 45,000 years ago, a date that keeps being pushed deeper into the past as further and older caves are found. Sometimes it's also just we find further ways into the cave deeper into the cave and then we find it there as well so we and we also know that we played flutes for certain we know that we played flutes as far back as forty-two thousand years ago and that's just because these are some of the artifacts and paintings which has survived long enough for us to find them 
it would be natural to assume that most art created so long ago has disappeared. Certainly, all the dances, rituals, and shamanic presentations, they've all disappeared as soon as they came to an end, leaving no material trace in the world but for the impressions in the hearts and the minds of their tribe. Even if some researchers have made detailed and complex argumentations for some of the cave paintings found in the Swanian Jura region in Germany, they're saying that these, they, they claim that they're depicting dancing um, based on the way that they are standing and the way that the action paintings also, you can go, okay, but added to all of this about there being dancing and whatever. Um, in those same caves where the dancing uh, paintings on the wall are, there have also been found the remains of no less than eight flutes, some made from animal bone and some made out of ivory. So that music and dance goes together is not something that we need to argue particularly deeply for here. So the dances and the flute tunes and the sound of drums and rhythms, no doubt, might have might be gone, but the cave paintings and bone or ivory flutes have lasted tens of thousands of years. And that is that's interesting to think of even just today, I think. How do you make something last for these exceptionally long time spans? Like fossils, they are ancient. Some of them are ancient, you know, dinosaur fossils, 100 million years old. But art... How much of the art that we have, how many uh, Rembrandts or Van Gogh paintings will be around in 65,000 years? Even with the extreme care that we put into keeping these objects of art safe, they have to be restored every once in a while. Their paint fades and the buildup of microscopic dust particles makes the paintings deteriorate like in a hundred years. So how much of the original paint will still be there? in even 10,000 years, you know? They keep being fixed, they keep being tuned, keep being retouched, keep being cleaned. Um, and then, like, recently, somebody poured soup on some of these um, these paintings and going, yeah, they can salvage it and they can fix it or whatever, but everything has an impact. And this, this thing of the... Well, this is a little side uh, note, but it's like this case of um, the paint, paintings being redone or retouched or whatever. Uh, it's like a case of this grandfather's axe, you know, where my grandfather's axe, or oh, I inherited this grandfather, uh, this axe from my grandfather, uh, but um, uh, but it's been um, uh, grounded uh, to be sharp so many times that in the end the head was just so little that uh, we actually replaced the head on it. Um, got a new one so now it's this super excellent uh, thing and then just just the other day then actually the handle broke and I exchanged the handle and but this is this beautiful axe that I inherited from my grandfather and now there's nothing left of course but it has never stopped quite being the axe that I inherited from my grandfather but I have changed everything that actually is that axe so it's morphed into something else um is a little bit like that with the paintings that in the end uh, the whatever left or is on is deep whatever's left of the original painting that's deeply underneath other paints and this 
of course, to me, brings up this idea of translation that we've talked about here a little bit. It's like whenever you translate something uh, from one language to another or whatever, or then some of the meaning is um, changed. Does this also happen with, um, with painting in a different way? When somebody retouches it and redoes it, does it just slowly just get a little bit of drift? Any replication, any copying of it will never be completely perfect. It will that little little thing that that artist did that was doing a renovation will it be completely invisible? What what will it do? Anyway, the point is, even today, it's um, it's hard to imagine that. Uh, things will exist for 10,000 years. It's so long, like a Rembrandt existing for 10,000 years on wood and all of that. It's, it's, it's extraordinary that we have flutes and that we have the tools and we have the paintings of our ancestors from so far back. Absolutely amazing. And also just the natural wear and tear of any object or thing in the process of time is an unavoidable aspect of entropy. Art is ephemeral, yet archaeology shows us that art has been part of the human behavior from, I'd say, pretty close to the beginning, if not from the very beginning. And I get the sense that art is what we do as soon as our needs are met. And possibly even, not even then. Maybe maybe it's not even that when our needs are met, then we start to do it. It's like when our needs are not met, that's when we don't find food, when we are scared, when we're being attacked by someone. I would imagine that that's the time when you huddle together too. And this ancient symbolic structure of showmanship of one person standing up um, in front of the others, to rouse everybody up and to bring them in and to, for people to connect deeper because that's our strength, you know. Standing together as a group, that's what's going to ultimately, you know, make us stronger than any other animal alive. And what that clan that stood the strongest, they might be able to dare to take down their defenders and maybe it's not even from when our needs are met but it's like when our needs aren't met the huddling together and uh, um, that this is the time that it could have started already then the singing and the chanting and the drumming and uh, all of this this was much it's uh, anyway it's from the very beginning i'd say and the point being here is that we've been doing art we have exhibited artistic behavior, I think, from the very beginning of our species. So evolution has not weeded this thing out. As we talked about before, how certain traits, if they aren't useful, they get weeded out. Certainly if they are deleterious, if they are negative, then they will disappear. And, and if they're just completely random, then they'll also be weeded out so something about art must make it not useless to humans it's not what we do to survive but it is in a sense what we choose to do when survival has been secured and again here like i don't know i'm not even sure if it's just that it's when survival has been secured but that 
whilst we are trying to survive art is what we do as we as human beings awake into the world and as our consciousness has evolved to its present state where subsistence existence to you know um to only live to secure what we can go on that we can go on living that when this is not enough and possibly before that i'm muddling my argument here but like let's just let's just continue on with this thing that at least from when we are when we have food and we all sit around and we do it um when we all sit around and we're um eating food and then we're, we're everyone satiated then art comes but i can't keep, get this out of my head now that is um that it, that it's probably from before that as well hmm. anyway in light of this thing that it's as soon as um living is is um where we're not just um living in a subsistence existence where it all it's all about just um we're only living to secure that we can go on living but that that's not enough and in this light then art laughter and close knit relationships emerges for me as a paramount reason for why we bother to survive at all it's like the reason why do we then go on living as Camus says in the myth of, um, in, in what's it called the myth of sisyphus back to this thing i've gone the philosophical question of greatest importance is whether or not to com- to kill yourself it's um that's very full on of course but it is it's it makes a fine point of this existence has got to be enjoyable schopenhauer says it's uh, the boredom of existence shows that mere existence isn't enough the fact that if you aren't doing anything at all and you're just sitting around you get bored and that and that's a slippery slope to the end of existence so he goes there's something more in existence here that you have to add to it or whatever and that what we add to it it's like this all art that falls in under what we do here this is what makes um that without all of that life would be a grave as i seem to remember dante says it he doesn't say about art he says it about love but without love and art our world would be a grave anyway the the point i believe to be missing in the view that art singing and sculpting and traits like smiling and laughter that they're useless is that humanity's success has not just been in manipulating the environment it's not just been because we're like tool making animals um homo habilis but in it's also in creating close knit societies and this is the basis of all culture and eventually all civilization communities rely on cooperation for their existence and a community cannot emerge without cooperation which again depends on shared and joint attention which we've spoken about so much on this thing here communities are about connections the connections made within the community are almost more important than the individual themselves each individual is also of ultimate importance um when you look at one of them but as a, as a as a entity larger than the individuals the it's the connections that are made this is what um this in, in the brain in between people in the ideas in the in the tool making and this is a 
it's not just though amongst us people or whatever i think this is also this thing with connection and deeply interconnected things being stronger things it's a trait that we also share with forests you know or any web in nature it's the natural state i think or a natural inevitable tendency um in existence to connect deeper and deeper and in more and more intricate ways for those of you who haven't looked into the so-called world uh, wood wide web the www wood wide web it's not a website it's um it's a there's now her name escapes me but there's there's many people now there's one woman in particular that i I'm thinking of that I can't remember that did just some extraordinary work on looking at how trees are taking care of each other also not just one tree giving food through the the fungi fungal kind of network of um it's not just that and not just that roots literally connecting up and them giving water to the that one oak tree gives water to another oak tree which is related to to itself but actually that it's um the it um gives food uh, nutrients and it gives water to other trees that it is also not related to so if you haven't looked into this stuff uh, this is some very very cool stuff complex networks but of course um that i think yeah it is the natural state to connect deeper and deeper in more and more intricate ways and but to crown this achievement perhaps maybe that's just from the anthropocentric view but we humans are ultra social creatures which means that we form even deeper and even more complex networks in the realm of memes as well as genes you know our ideas they're so interconnected and this it's this is that whole realm where you could almost go this this is related to the shows to what the show is it's something that happens in between human beings it's like my ideas that i'm sharing with you right now i'm being shared with you and you're receiving certain parts of it and other bits are going by the wayside um so yeah anyway all these connections the connections through the memes through the ideas and and uh, through the genes in the biological sense all these connections bring a whole suite of traits and tendencies with it that makes sense only when we look at ourselves as part of a group there are things that we do which at first might not seem to have any direct utility but some of these begin to make a whole lot of sense when we look at them from a group perspective smiling laughter and singing might only make a limited sense when done alone but seen in the context of a group of people even as small as a group of two two the smiling and laughter becomes meaningful deeply meaningful and as lone individuals we don't do very well and most of us would find it very hard to feed ourselves if there was some kind of a apocalypse the covid-19 pandemic proved that for many a home gardener spending 400 hours and $2000 to produce two cups of blueberries and an oddly shaped pumpkin and just enough salad for a few side dishes so beyond going to the store we are relatively ignorant of how to provide enough calories for our family let alone fixing a car or a computer or make sure that the electricity continues to run and as a group though 
As a group, we are really smart, arguably the smartest thing in the known universe. And as much as we fail in certain aspects, we get other aspects wonderfully right. Even though we lie to ourselves about it and politicians and gurus claim they know, in our hearts, or when a child asks why the sky is blue, we know we know so very little. But we also know that in books, or on the internet, or for the old-fashioned amongst us, in, you know, in, in real people that you meet, that knowledge can be found. Infinite knowledge, it's not, maybe not infinite, but it's certainly massive. There are people out there whose deepest passion is to know exactly why the sky is blue. It's their deepest passion to keep the power running, and it is their deepest interest to grow endless amounts of blueberries and gloriously shaped pumpkins, as we have just passed Halloween now. But alone, we know almost nothing, but between us, our collective distributed knowledge certainly is non-trivial. If we truthfully look at how little we know, it can quickly get quite daunting and humbling. If you have trouble thinking of anything that you don't understand, you find yourself face to face with the Dunning-Kruger effect. The simple fact that we don't know what we don't know, combined with the fact that knowing a little makes one um, think one knows a lot, whilst the more you know, the more you become aware of uh, how little you actually know. When you think you know everything, all it takes is an encounter with Socrates and his persistent questions. You know, some Socratic... Uh, and, and here, the, the role of Socrates can always be substituted with a child just endlessly and persistently asking questions, always digging deeper. Like, you know, the child, just like Socrates, always asking a parent, why? And you try to explain and they go, why? why and you get a, a, a sometimes very quickly within just a few questions you end up with just these very deeply profound and complex uh, questions so it's good um you but so very soon after just i don't know how many just within two or three whys you often butt up against your own personal ignorance so all this is to say that there are things which are apparently useless to individuals, which are very useful for groups. Like art, which certainly can be seen as useless in isolation, but placed into a group contest, context, it's the glue that holds it all together. And the other side of the laughter is useful debate. There are the uh, um, scholars like Robin Dunbar. Uh, he's the one that's famous for the sort of Dunbar number, I can't even remember what it is, but it's like 140 or 150 or whatever, which is the amount of people that can be within a group uh, before you start, yeah, the maximum number that can be within a group uh, that you actually genuinely can connect to, and I can't remember what it was, but I thought it was um, just over a hundred and something. Um, well, anyway, Robin Dunbar theorizes that singing and laughter that they played a crucial role in our abilities um, to produce speech and that it was instrumental also to how language evolved. Um, so when I'm saying that uh, Robin Dunbar is on the other side of the uh, laughter is uh, useful or laughter is useless, um, then he's on the same side as us is basically what's going on here. Um, 
because uh, this guy Robin Dunbar also points out another feature of uh, sociality of just relating to each other which is that our closest relatives the great apes spend an extraordinary amount of time on grooming bonds and relationships are strengthened and forged by one ape grooming another that's meaning making sure that their fur is okay and picking and and touching each other and uh I mean, it's, we can look at it and you can say, well, they are doing that and they're keeping the fur clean and they're making sure that you... But it's also, it's just being in the present of each other and touching each other in a comforting way. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say. And this, um, this doesn't only foster bonds between the individuals engaging in the activity, but in periods where the, the, a tribe of apes are grooming each other the whole tribe as a group is benefiting even if certain individuals receive no real direct grooming and in the process relations are forged and strengthened hierarchies are maintained and disputes and disagreements are soothed and of course there's like there's many reasons for why when you're sitting in a group, even if you are just sitting there munching on some leaves, because apes do have to eat a lot of leaves because they get so little nutrition out of the thing. It's not like eating cooked food, which we do all the time, and it's so, your body takes up so much. They've got to spend a lot of time eating. So you're just sitting there eating, and, you, and you're very calm. And maybe someone you care about, maybe someone you're related to directly, your kid or your significant other or whatever like they're being groomed and you see that and you see what's going on and you see how something a discrepancy is being mended by someone grooming each other and they feel good so i think um that's what that means that idea that it's not magic that when somebody's grooming and in the group everybody feels better but it just ties people together um, anyway, what Robin Dunbar then um, proposes is that music, or more specifically singing and laughter, the human activity of those things, that these could function as a kind of social grooming. That if one ape can make um, the others, or if they, if they could, make it laugh, and we know that they do exhibit something sort of similar to that when something unexpected happens, um, that this would then help the bonding of the group. It would serve the same function as the grooming, so that laughter could. And imagine a group of ancient humans losing their fire in a time when fire was something you found, not something you made, which is an incredible thing to think of, I think. Just you could something you could gather. When, some, when fire was something that you sort of captured in the wild and brought it home with you, where you fed it sticks and logs. Well, this, if, you, if the fire went out, this would be an existential crisis where, you know, and if this happened, if one human then stood up before the others to sing and this song, you know, for the others to listen or to participate in or... So this song then could capture and express the emotions of loss. This could heal and kindle a new fire in the hearts of the tribe. A fire that unifies them in the hurt and the fear and uncertainty. And this song could then remind them of who they are. Not 
who the singer is or who they are when they're singing or each of the many people listening but who they are the together the tribe the flock the song then and its fire kindled is carried along in the hearts of those braves who set out into the paleolithic wilderness with its saber-toothed tigers and cave bears and cantankerous woolly rhinos and the relentless elements of the ice age environments these cold wanderers on their quest for fire out there in the wilderness to bring fire home they feel this song and they feel this experience that they carry it with them in their memory and it imprints on them not intellectually emotionally to the deepest kind of cause of why we do it and and it's this kind of feeling and this kind of connection that makes that person wandering out in the dark of the wilderness looking for fire that person will now lay down their life if it's necessary for the tribe if it can get a if it thinks that this its own death can bring the fire back so there you go that's very useful isn't it as i found out researching this the way that humans sing is also unique in the animal kingdom because this goes back to this uh, hypersociality and how connection how connected we are because we are the only species which when one individual starts singing we others join in even if we don't know the song we join in by clapping or stopping stomping rhythms and we can hum harmonies and uh, sing sympathetic melodies along and no doubt there's some sort of singing before there was words you know we recognize um notes and tones that are anyway but that's a long long story we were singing before we even spoke i think but when when we hear the music when somebody brings up a mood through tones then we lean in and then we join in as we spoke about you know the attention is captured the attention is joined we we join together we lean in and then we all join in and and we pay attention to each other a reciprocal joint attention through which we converse and participate together in music and connections are forged immediately like the melody and words if there are any how they reach out and kind of grooms the others you know the the rest of the tribe it reaches out and holds the hand of everyone who can hear it so it's like they're all sitting there holding hands but it's and so it's through touch but it's also music it moves us in mysterious ways birds as well they of course they sing but birds all have their own melodies and one bird uh, doesn't want to blend in and mash up with the others who are chirping it wants to stand out and be noticed it can be some sort of dialogue where one bird is tweeting and it's looking for a mate or whatever but birdsong is intrinsically individualistic in nature and the fact that everything about music suggests that its nature is sharing and non-competitive this adds um, to the fact that music and the arts in general are of great importance when we humans gather like it must be important to us because it just becomes this 
weird distinguishing feature we also sing like there are music there are precedents for everything that humans do out there but we've taken certain things in nature and we've um, elevated it to a level that is not found there and singing turns out as one of those things too and as we saw um, indicated in an earlier episode where I talked about looking and the gaze and that that this idea of the cooperative eye hypothesis, the, that the white in our eyes, the fact that we have the pupil in the middle and then you have the white sclera around it, all this makes the, it's so easy to see what it is that we are looking at. And this suggests, as I'm not going to go through all of this, but it suggests that we might have evolved um, in a cooperative environment where letting others know what you're thinking and intending by you looking at it, we often look at the things that we're about to do and it tells a lot about us by knowing that. And for the eye to have changed like this, we need to have been within an environment where others knowing your intentions and what you wanted to do, that this wasn't exploited and used against you. We became humans in a deeply trusting and cooperative environment. And that this is more important than this nature in tooth and claw. And it wasn't that we fought each other. And I think it's a very endearing idea. And if it's true that we've been cooperative enough for long enough time to shape the physical characteristics of our eyes, that is a long time by human standards. Like... How long does it take for a trait of like the the ape's eyes are much darker? So it's harder to know exactly what they're looking at, and as a result, uh, if you put um, you can trick an ape uh, by looking at something, and you just look to the side, you look to the left with the eyes, and the, the monkey or ape will take the direction of your face, so the sh the direction of your head as to what you're looking at, because it doesn't pay properly attention to your eyes unless they've been in contact with human beings because they're smart so they'll learn but it's not a normal behavior for them so for us we have to put sunglasses on so that people don't know what you're looking at because uh, we look at the eyes but for for that time to change that is a long time for eyes to change and this group functions that i think then that the group functions of laughter music and art as social bonding glue this also to me points to a cooperative environment uh, where sharing attention joining attention on matters practical such as learning skills but also matters of love and laughter the exploration of ideas the feeling of belonging and and spirituality all these things can flourish from here from this playful, interactive, deeply connecting behavior. So to me, these are powerful indicators that this process that I call illuminated showmanship or that we call showmanship or this connection, that this has been present from the dawn of our species and in fact might have been part of actually creating the species. That's a big, bold claim, but I also like that it has with it here that it it comes from a place of connection and a place of um, love that goes beyond not just from the parent to the child or even more specifically from the mother to the child but that it um, is to the uh, to the whole group
we're going to talk about that in uh, some com- coming episodes. But I do have to give it to those who suggest that we, what we do as artists and performers, that it is useless in certain practical sense or in any practical sense for some of it because there is a grain of truth in this since we don't dance or sing because it is useful in the common usage of that word we do it because of the way that it makes us feel and the thoughts and emotions that arise when we dance when we sing when we watch a performance when we participate in ritual or ceremony this is of value in and of itself That's why we do it. It offers a participatory experience different from the everyday state of mind. Not less valuable than logic and reason and hunting and killing enemies. The artful state of mind is inclusive, connecting and open. And it's what we seek beyond the mundane necessities in life. And we've been doing it since arguably before we were human beings. Our art and shows are expressions of our individuality, but only to a certain point. As a showman, you want to show man, man. Show others something which is of interest to them because of our shared humanity. Art does not lock down and limit. It does not simplify like a mathematical equation. One plus one equals two is very different from this man and this other man are blood brothers and they they are at the same time one and one but also they are inseparable as a unit of two blood brothers it's not just one plus one equals two it is a whole another level of connection and depth and meaning in here and the artful mindset it connects and opens up possibilities and makes these possibilities real and felt It does not lessen and explain something and simplify it. It invites joining in and it complexifies everything. Exactly because it's not life and death matters. Because artful connections happens when we have eaten, when we are safe and together. But it also happens when we're on the trail of an animal hunting and when we're preparing for war or whatever. As awful as it is to think about that. But it is, this is the dimension that we humans add to the hunt. It's what we add to survival. It's what we add to being together. It's what we human beings add to life and existence. The artful approach is a playful activity and a mode of being which in its full expression is what makes us humans. It's playful, but it's deadly serious. And thanks a lot for coming along on this uh, explorations of the usefulness of art. (laughs) It's been a pleasure sharing this uh, leg of the journey with you. And uh, until next time, all I'm going to ask for is, uh, you know, tell a friend that this thing exists. That's all you need to do. You don't have to do anything more than that. I have uh, been blessed over the last little bit to have um, blessed to have a lot of extra people have found me. 
know that after I did a lecture at the Magic Convention, um, Illusions and Horsons, then a lot of people have found me through that. So that's great. It's really nice to see that uh, after hearing me speak <laughs> passionately about these things uh, live, that it uh, results in ex lots of extra people who are listening, which is very nice. So maybe someone you like, somebody do you respect, or somebody that uh, you think are lost, or somebody who's already peeking at their game. Anyway, whoever it is, if you like someone, maybe this will be really uh, nice for them as well. So tell someone you love about the way of the showman. Maybe it is for them, as well as for you. And until next time, all that's left to say is take care of yourself, and those you love, and I hope to see you along the way. Thank you.